0: Uh, we can turn back to the chapter we read, uh, Habakkuk chapter 3. And we can read again uh, verses 19, and, verses, sorry, 17 and following. But I want us to basically think about the entire chapter as we are in our service this morning. Though the fig tree should not blossom, high places. Habakkuk, as so I'm sure we know, had problems. And um, one of his uh, issues was Babylon. Now of course, Babylon doesn't mean anything to us today unless we like going to museums but in the ancient world around the time that Habakkuk lived if there had been a BBC news report everything in it would have been about Babylon what is Babylon doing now that would just be the list of items that would appear one after the other and Every single one of the items would just indicate that Babylon seemed to be all-powerful. That there was nobody anywhere who could resist it. And um, as Habakkuk thought about that, he said, well, yeah, well, it is true that God uses uh, powerful nations to bring uh, chaos. I mean, God has done that numerous times throughout uh, history. And um, Habakkuk could have sat in his um, pious armchair and said to himself, Well, isn't it just the case that God punishes the nations for their idolatry? And that was true. That is what God was doing. Although uh, Babylon was a country with its own idols, God still used it to um, punish other countries who had other idols. And the Habakkuk, I suppose, after he thought about that for a while, would have said, yeah, well, that's just what to expect. So then we would say to ourselves, well, what is the problem? What is the problem that's facing Habakkuk? If God is just doing his normal activity, which he might do every period of years, just bring along chaos. And the problem that Habakkuk had was not that God was using Babylon to punish pagan nations, but he was using Babylon to punish Judah. And that really disturbed him. He couldn't understand it. How can the God of the covenant, the God who has made so many promises, the God who is almighty, the God who is wise, the God who is full of love, how can he do such a thing? Well, The fact of the matter is, he did it. And Habakkuk, in his book here, only three chapters, but he's got to wrestle with this. How do we live in a time when God is angry? And we might say to ourselves, How do we know he's angry? And we might say to ourselves, surely, when he gets angry, he will ensure that somehow or other, his anger doesn't fall on us. Of course, Babylon, as I said, is a long time ago. So therefore we have to ask ourselves, don't we, what is the point of the book of Habakkuk being in the Bible? Why are we told about Habakkuk's thought processes? Why are we thought about, told about his confusion in some of the earlier chapters? Or even his, at times, his posture of rebellion? Because there's lessons to learn. Lessons to learn for us. As we look around our world today, What do we see? At one level, we see chaos, don't we? Look at things from a spiritual point of view. Well, there's a lot more people living today than there was in the past, obviously, but... The percentage of people today who have got an interest in the gospel, as far as our society is concerned, is minute in comparison to the past. That's just a reality. We are not even on the fringes. We are beyond that. Spirituality in our society basically means anything chaos. Then, at a social level, I mean, people are very disturbed at the disintegration of our society. And they wonder how to solve it, and they wonder how far yet can it go, as far as the social level is concerned in many places, chaos. How about our security? all our powerful weapons. Where's the sense of well-being? That we can um, have uh, confidence about the future, that um, the huge amounts that we spend on attempting to provide safety, Can we guarantee it? Well, we know the answer to that. <clears throat> no, we can't. There's never been such a security conscious generation. But what's all around us? Chaos. What do we make of global warming? It doesn't matter if it's, as far as we're concerned today, it doesn't matter if it's a circular thing that happens every few centuries, or whether it's a new thing. For us, it's there. And we have to ask, surely, don't we, Why? Why are all these things happening in 2023? And in the middle of all these things, the obvious question is, where is God? I mean, that is the obvious question, isn't it? As we listen, I'm not trying to depress anyone, but as we listen to the news, after each item, surely the thought crosses our mind where's God? And where is the answer to that question? Where is God? And the answer is, he's everywhere. There's not a single thing that's happened yesterday that was done in the absence of God. And I suppose the next question that comes to that is, whose side is he on? Or is he on any side? Another question I suppose comes is, what do we say to him since he's everywhere? The fact that he is everywhere means that there's always an opportunity to say something to him. But when we do have these opportunities, what do we say to him? And I would suggest that that's where Habakkuk can help us. What do we say to God in difficult days? As we can see from this chapter, there are basically two sections to it. And I have given them the title, Prayerful Reflections. That's the first part of the chapter, down to verse 16. And then his confident resolve in verses 17 to 19. I just want us to run through the both parts and just see what um, lessons we can learn for ourselves. I suppose there's always the two uh, reactions to life that we can have. There's um, escapism or there's realism. and. Habakkuk, I suspect, shows us realism. So it's prayerful reflections. Looking at prayer, I suppose there are certain questions we could ask whenever we listen to somebody praying or are about to listen to somebody praying. We would say to ourselves, wouldn't we, at least to say to Habakkuk, what does he do in his prayer? I mean, how does he pray? What kind of praying person was he? Because the prayer must come from the person. There's no point borrowing a prayer from somebody else and using it for ourselves if it doesn't actually describe what we're actually feeling or thinking. and what details are in his prayer. Well, no doubt there's many, but um, I just want to think of a few as we are here. And the first one is, as we can see in verse 2 of the chapter, in the first two lines, he's realistic about what God might do. I mean, it's a really strange way of a believer to pray, isn't it, there in verse two. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. He's basically saying there, I am apprehensive about what is happening And divine providence. And I think it's worth noting, he doesn't focus on what evil Babylon are doing. He doesn't say to God, I'm really devastated by what Babylon are doing. He was devastated at what they were doing. But in his book, as he's worked his way through all things, thinking about it, he's come to this stage where he says, Lord, what you're doing makes me apprehensive. So he's realistic, isn't he? He's realised. That God is angry. And no doubt there were lots of reasons for God being angry. But the fact of the matter, he now realizes that God is angry. And I suppose the question comes to us in our day do we think God is angry? I mean, it's a really serious question. But as, as he thought about things, Habakkuk says there in verse 2 again, as he looks at God, he's, he says to him, In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath or in times of wrath, remember mercy. We can see from that, two lines that he's very concerned about recovery. Revival. And I'm so sure we all know um, revival is a topic that we as Christians love to think about and we know stories that have come from the past and we um, love to escape into them and say to ourselves wouldn't it be wonderful if God did it again but that's not what Habakkuk is suggesting here. When he talks about God reviving something, he's talking about something that's going to die. What is ahead of them? What is facing Judah? What is Babylon going to do to Judah? Babylon is going to come along, knock down their temple, stop the worship of God, take most of the people into captivity, spread them round their empire, and to all appearances, Israel is at an end. He's been told it's coming. He doesn't know when it's coming. In fact, 60 years have to pass before it comes. So when he prays for something to be revived, he's not comparing it to something in the past. He's saying to God. I know all this is coming because you are angry. But in the midst of your anger, revive your cause. In the midst of your anger, give it real life. And that's a good prayer to make, isn't it? Because his prayer was answered eventually. (laughs) It was a long time in the future. Because not only was there going to be 60 years before Babylon actually invaded Judah, there was going to be another 70 years before he would answer the prayer. So you're talking about something that's going to happen 130 years later. Habakkuk himself wouldn't have known that. But we know that. That's how long it took God to answer the prayer of Habakkuk. And it's something for us to learn. Because perhaps our most earnest prayers will be answered after we're gone. But Habakkuk... Didn't know the future of how God could do this thing to revive his cause. And of course we know, strangely, the place where his cause was revived was in Babylon. In the very place where you wouldn't expect it to start. But there it was. We can read the book of Daniel and so on and when Cyrus became emperor and set the people free and Ezra and Nehemiah appear from nowhere and start to lead God's people back to the promised land. (coughs) But, Habakkuk didn't know that. He didn't know what God would do in the future. And of course neither do we. How do we anticipate God reaching a global community of several billion. Well, we have our suggestions and we can see what well, the internet can do it. But how can he do it through the internet? What way will he do it? We don't know. We don't know anything about what God will do in the future and how he can do it. But any more did Habakkuk. But Habakkuk knew that there was one event in the past that he could think about, and about which he could get hope and direction about what God would do in the future. And the event that happened in the past, of course, is the Exodus. And he goes on to describe the Exodus there from verses four, sorry, from verses three uh, down to verse nine. And it's a very graphic description of what God did And if we just read it, it's like brightness like light and rays flashing from his hand and there he veiled his power and so on. Before him went pestilence, that's the plagues in Egypt. And he stood and measured the earth and he shook it and the Red Sea opened up and all the nations around, they saw these things taking place. And it was an incredible display of divine power. And it's intriguing, I think, that Habakkuk doesn't say to God, repeat that. Instead, what he says to God there at the end of um, verse 4, the Exodus. Marvelous though it was. And from our point of view, a display of real divine power. Habakkuk actually says about it that when God was doing all that, he was actually hiding most of his power. In other words, the Exodus tells us a little. Of what God can do. But as far as. What God could fully do. No one actually knows. And therefore he says to God. I know. That you have the power. To sort things out. And I know that one day you will sort it out. But meanwhile, as he thinks about all these things, we can see that, verse 16, he trembles. The thought of what's happening makes him apprehensive. My lips are quivering, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. And as we look at that description of his reaction, I think it's safe to say that here we have the response of a man who cares deeply about what is happening. His prayer, in some ways, brings him into a real sense of the power of God. And I would suggest, how should we react to our society today, where all kinds of sins are being advocated? what do we expect Almighty God to do? Well, we have to leave that with him. But Habakkuk then tells us what we can do in verse 17 onwards. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, Uh, writing from prison he says to us rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice some people they've got a real problem with that verse (laughs) I've got a problem with the verse. I suspect if you're honest, you'll have a problem with the verse. What's the problem? <clears throat> the problem is the word always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice, says Paul, if you're like me in prison. I have no idea what's going to happen to me. He tells us in Philippians. Don't know if I get released or not. But she was there because he was on trial before the Roman Emperor. But still, this is his advice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And yet again, I say Rejoice. Habakkuk, I suppose, here is an Old Testament expression of that verse. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and then he lists it all there in verse 17, and yet he comes down to verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I don't know if Paul, it's probably a daft question to ask, what is somebody's favorite Old Testament book, but we do know that um, the phrase, the just shall live by faith, which Paul um, says a lot about, that comes from the book of Habakkuk. And it may be that other ideas came to Paul from the book of Habakkuk, like rejoicing in the Lord always. But anyway, Habakkuk says, I think it's important to note Habakkuk's reaction there when everything goes pear-shaped. He, he, he doesn't really say, I could rejoice, but he says, I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Although everything about him was chaotic, and it could hardly be a more chaotic thing for a, an agricultural society as Israel was. This is described here in verse 17. Habakkuk says, even though my whole society collapses, I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The one certainty that he had in life was that God was with him. And whatever else might happen, his God would be there. And the idea that he mentions there when he says, God is my strength, well, that's an unusual word for power. And it has the idea of a combination, and we might find this hard to, to appreciate, but it's got the idea of a combination of power and wealth. So it's almost a have a quick saying, everything around me may collapse, but God, God will be my strength. God will be my source of power. And if we go back again to Philippians, and where Paul talks about rejoicing in the Lord always and so on, and he tells the Philippians that his God is able to supply all their needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus. He doesn't say, and as often it has been quoted, he doesn't say God is able to supply all their needs out of his riches and glory. But he is able to supply them according to his riches and glory. And as someone has said, it's possible for an individual to give a pound to someone And that would be true to say by that, they're giving out of their riches. But it may not be true to say they're giving according to their riches. But God, he always gives according to his riches. So here is Habakkuk, and he's in the middle of this chaotic experience, and yet he says, God the Lord is my strength. And the power that he is exhibiting all around is not the power he's going to show to me. It's what Habakkuk says. The power that is going to be expressed as I go through this time of uncertainty, is Habakkuk. The power that the Lord will show towards us is a power in which he will reveal the riches of his grace. And Habakkuk's words are here to tell us that. That in times of difficulty, God is a more than adequate resource. and we don't know what yet is going to happen. But whatever happens, God the Lord is my strength. And Habakkuk goes on to say, there in verse 19, in all this time of chaos where will he be walking? well he tells us God will do something to him or for him or in him wherever you want to look at it he makes my feet like the deers why? so we can tread as he puts it on my high places. What's happening down at the low places? Well, Babylon's on the march. But where is Habakkuk going to be? Well, what he describes as his high places. How would we describe high places? Above the mundane, above the noise, above the ordinary, a place where liberty is found, where you can walk where you want, a place of a good atmosphere. Place of clear vision, my high places. John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress talks about the delectable mountains. And all these mountains have, they're all high places, of all I know. Bunyan may have been based on this, I don't know. But the. Um, These mountains, there's a mount called clear, where on a clear day, you can see the gates of the celestial city. There's also one called error, which means it's easy to spot it from that location. But the point is, surely, that these high places, as Banyan even indicates there as Christian and hopeful make their way, or faithful make their way, to delectable mountains, are there as they journey to the celestial city. And they can be found in difficult times. The high places. We need certain enablement to do it. But God gives it. Because he makes our feet like the feet of a deer. And I'm sure we've all seen deer going up the mountain. Quickly and gracefully. Ascending to the heights. What are our high places? Well, I suppose there's lots of things we could say about that. I mean, Paul does say to us, doesn't he, set your affection on things above, where Christ is, at the right hand of God, far above the ordinary, far above the mundane, far above the trivial and far above the chaotic. Take the doctrine of adoption. It's the ultimate height. It's the Mount Everest of Christian experience. God didn't have to adopt us when he forgave us. He could have forgiven us and just left us as being forgiven sinners, and that would be a marvelous blessing. But God did far more than that. He adopted us into his family. And thinking about adoption takes us very high. How high does it take us? Well, it reminds us that we are joint heirs with Jesus. We can, as we're on the high places, we can, even if we take a doctrine of adoption, we can look back the way. When did God want this to happen? When did he plan it? Well, that's why he chose his people, so that they would be his sons. We can look ahead. Because the whole creation is looking ahead to the appearing of the sons of God. So we can look ahead to this marvelous future when in reality we'll enter into the fullness of the inheritance. But you only see that from high places. And what about now? (coughs) What does the doctrine of adoption bring about now? Well, Paul tells in Romans 8 that even as we groan, we groan within ourselves and strangely And wonderfully, the Holy Spirit groans with us and enables us to say with inner strength, Abba, Father. That's a good high place to be, isn't it? Above all the confusion of our contemporary world. Just to ascend far above it. Ascend like deer with speed. And as we look around from that that point, and we can see the whole of history in a sense. We can go back to God's plans to have our people as his children. We can go ahead to the time when he and they will uh, will have the inheritance. And in the meantime, God is with us. He's with us all the time, but the sense of his presence is much more real on the high We can go up there and see what we were, and see who we are, and see who we yet will be. So Habakkuk, a realistic man, and you know. It is intriguing that realism brings rejoicing. Escapism doesn't bring anything, but realism brings rejoicing. And if there's a title to put over Habakkuk chapter 3, that is a title you want to be a happy person in a world of difficulty and uncertainty, then ascend to the high places and rejoice with with what God is doing, shall we pray?